Welcome to the Fantasy Baseball Beat. Welcome to the Fantasy Baseball Beat, part of the Triple Play Fantasy Network. Thank you so much for joining us. Pumped to be back. My name is Chris Torres. I'm your host today. Joined, as always, by my lovely co-host, Mike Carter. We took a two-week hiatus, had a little bit of a reset, and uh, now we're ready to get back into it. Continue to do our our best to give you a show that's filled with informative, unique, and entertaining fantasy baseball analysis. Mike, how you doing, man? It's been a while. I feel like this is the longest time I haven't seen you in like six or seven months. And you know what's interesting about that is probably that that correlates with the best two weeks of your life. Probably not having not having having me be part of it is probably fantastic. (laughs) No man, I missed you a lot smoother. Yeah, I I missed you, man. It was I was uh, I was kind of getting that Jones in for doing some of this uh, fantasy baseball talk. You know, I've been doing a little analysis on the end of my season. I had a piece come out on fan tracks over the weekend with some bullpen stuff on it. And uh, now I'm kind of in that lull, you know, we're done with baseball here in the Midwest and uh, getting ready for training here in a little bit, but kind of, uh, kind of bored other than just watching the playoffs. How about you? Yeah, I'm feeling the same, man. It's such a, a letdown when you go from six months of the grind of MLB managing your fantasy teams and us doing the pod, like, it just kept us so busy, right, for that time period. And then when that all ends, it's like, now what? You know, it's like, what am I going to watch the NFL? You know, no, uh, I mean, I like that. football, but it's it's not <laughs> like I just nowhere near the enjoyment um, with football that I get out of baseball. So it has been uh, a little bit of a, a lull, like you said. But uh, yeah, ready to get back into it. I'm happy to see you. Um, for anybody who's listening to the show for the first time, let me just give you a, a, an overview of what to expect. For our first segment, we usually bring on an MLB beat writer to get their insights on the team they cover. Today, we've got a great guest for that segment, Gary Phillips of the New York Daily News, to talk all things New York Yankees. And for our second segment, we'll be bringing on a fantasy baseball analyst uh, to chat with Mike and I about the fantasy season that was and look ahead to next season. And for this week, it's going to be uh, back pick fantasy baseball. Um, it goes, his, his actual name is Tyler. Uh, so we'll, we'll be chatting with him in a bit. Excited to have him on. Uh, so let's get into it. Like I said, we've got Gary Phillips here, Yankees beat writer for the New York Daily News, a paper that I grew up reading and still read today. Uh, you've also seen his work in The Athletic, The New York Times, and Sports Illustrated. Gary, thank you so much for joining us. How's it going? Doing all right. Thank you guys for having me on. Yeah. So, Gary, I, I, I got to admit, so I get I get both papers delivered. So I get the New York Post for the weekend edition uh, Friday through Sunday, and then I get the daily news on Sunday. So I just want to be upfront about that. Um, I, I do read both papers, but a little bit more of the post. But I love your work. I've been reading the daily news since I was like, I don't know eight to ten years old um i, I was an odd kid um well that's <laughs> reading newspapers the statement of the year yeah well yeah well, not I, much has changed actually i guess that i guess that makes me an odd kid too then uh, but okay. uh growing up <laughs> but want to thank you for for saying that the kind words about my work and then also thank you for subscribing to not just the daily news but the new york post also uh wish 
more people were subscribing to newspapers in general. So uh, I won't fault you for picking one over the other or favoring one over the other. I'm just glad people are subscribing. Yeah, you know, I can't do the online thing. I like reading a newspaper uh, on a computer to me just doesn't feel right. You know, like I need uh i i need to feel it right like i don't want to just see your words gary i want to feel them in my hands you know like it's just i i, I need that <laughs> it needs to be tangible for me um I, I spend enough time looking at a screen so uh but yeah I'm, i guess i'm just old school like that <laughs> i i can do the the online reading and get my news that way but there there's still no better feeling than seeing your name in print yeah yeah so, um, all right. So let's get into it. Let, let's let's talk some Yankees here. Um, well, first, before we even get into that, now that we're in the off season and maybe we've got a, a little bit more time, um, I'd like to learn a little bit about you and kind of your career path and and how you got to the Daily News. So, if you could spend a couple minutes just just telling us about that. Yeah. So I went to school at Seton Hall University, uh, where I studied journalism and kind of had my mind made up going in that I wanted to be in sports wasn't ever good at science or math and writing always came pretty naturally to me. And, you know, I knew I wasn't good enough or big enough to play professional baseball. So I figured this would be the next best path and the one that made the most sense. I had a couple of different editorial roles on the school's paper, the Setonian there, which is really where I got my ed- education in college. Um, I also had a few different free uh, internships and freelance gigs before I took my first full-time job with Yankees Magazine, and that was about two years after school. Um, But the pandemic brought some layoffs to Major League Baseball. I was included in that. So from there, I started freelancing as a baseball writer for the New York Times. Uh, In addition, I eventually took a full-time position at New Jersey Monthly, and that led to my position at the Daily News. That's uh, That's the abbreviated version. Keep surviving and grinding, right? That's the way to go. Exactly, yeah. For sure. As you guys mentioned, I did some stuff with The Athletic and Sporting News, Sports Illustrated, all little freelance gigs and assignments that I just you know, took whatever I could get and hoped along the way it would pay off. And right now I feel like it has. So. That's, that's great. That's great. Gary, you know, we're talking about the Yankees here, and there's uh, a lot of things to talk about when you think about the New York Yankees. And there's been a lot of talk recently on Twitter or X, whatever you want to call it, about the way in which the organization uses and applies analytics. And Hal Steinbrenner has spoken about doing an external audit of their process and where they're at and where they might be able to make some improvements. In your opinion, what are your overall thoughts on the issue? And what, if any, changes do you foresee them making in regards to the way they approach player evaluation and development? So starting with analytics, everyone likes to blame analytics when things go wrong, particularly with the Yankees. Like it's some sort of boogeyman, I guess. Mm-hmm. Brian Cashman and Aaron Boone have expressed similar sentiments to that. And I actually agree with them. There's plenty of successful teams that are heavily dependent on analytics and data. If you want to get a little more nuanced about it, I think the Yankees should be asking themselves this offseason if they have the right people analyzing the right numbers. Are they communicating this data in a helpful way that caters to the preferences of individual players and their needs? Based on what Aaron Judge said at the end of the year, I don't know if you guys saw those comments, but based on what he said, the answer is no. So I would look for the Yankees to kind of change their analytical approach in that regard, not necessarily, oh, we're blowing up the department or we're just going to stop looking at numbers all of a sudden, because that's just not how 
for modern baseball works for better or worse. And like I said, there's plenty of teams that have thrived with its data. Um, as for player evaluations, there's nothing wrong with looking at all the organiz- all the data the organization has there as well. But the Yankees also have to start avoiding injury-prone players, and they need to do a better job at accounting for intangibles and personalities. Like we've seen in the years past with guys like Joey Gallo, Sonny Gray, not everybody's fit for New York. Mm-hmm. And I think the organization needs to do a better job sniffing that out when it comes to who they're acquiring. Mm-hmm. But that's the truth, no I, doubt. I, I totally agree. It really is. I mean, we're fantasy baseball nerds. So, of course, we're, I guess, pro analytics, uh, even though like just using the term analytics is so broad. <laughs> you know, I think it just gets thrown out there so loosely but yeah i mean i i think it's just a matter of the way in which they apply them it's almost to me like they're kind of like caught in between you know it it seems like they do try to you know also look at that more subjective uh element as well and it just it seems like the way they mix the subjective and the objective more analytically based things it just they haven't figured out the right recipe you know, and, and you look at some of these teams like the Rays, like the Dodgers, like the Astros, like they have the recipe. And for whatever reason, it just hasn't clicked with the Yankees. Um, you know, and one other thing I just want to kind of comment on as far as the overall philosophy around this organization that I, I think I see as a problem. Ken Rosenthal, I don't know if you saw this, Gary, but he talked about how like there is this he used this term and I thought it it made sense he called it a sustainability fetish and you know he was kind of i think calling out teams like the yankees like the red sox who have taken this approach in recent years where it's like they just want to be good enough to compete but there's not quite the willingness to take it to that extra level you know it's almost like this idea that the playoffs are just a crapshoot and you just have to get there and whatever happens happens has almost become more predominant. Um, and it's, I think, in my opinion, it seems like it's kind of infiltrated the Yankees organization and has negatively impacted it. Well, any thoughts on that? Well, it certainly feels and seems that way. You know, it's hard to knock the Yankees as a team that doesn't go all in or a team that doesn't spend enough when they have a payroll like they did last year, when they have a spending spree like they did last offseason. But on the flip side of that, you know, they went into the year with obvious holes at third base and left field. Others emerged in the rotation behind the plate. At you know, throughout the season, there were countless other problems, but they went into the year with two clear problems. After Hal Steinbrenner said we weren't done yet, he said that after mm-hmm. re-signing Aaron Judge and adding Carlos Rodon. So, yeah, it's fair to wonder: like, are you just trying to sneak in and you know? benefit from a so-called roll of the dice once you're in the playoffs or are you actually living up to your championship or bust mantra and i think that's where a lot of yankee fans get really irritated and annoyed with this present regime because the brand and the identity that the yankees themselves created is championship or bust right but are you really championship or bust when you know you don't have a left fielder and you know you don't have a third baseman I think that's a fair thing for fans to get upset about, but also the organization isn't going to come out and say, you know what? 
never mind. We're, we're no longer championship or bust. We're, we're just going to try to be competitive. We're going to look to win. But, you know, if we don't win the World Series, well, hey, you can't win them every year. You know, the organization's never going to come out and say that. But they have also con- the Yankees have also conditioned their fans to believe that is the brand. That is the mission. And so fans are, fans are seeing obvious contradictions to that. And they're calling it out. And they're right to do so. That's fascinating yeah. because, you know, as a White Sox fan, I'm used to the cheap the cheap route. And when you're running Billy McKinney and Willie Calhoun out there as regular players, <laughs> man, that's not – to me, that's not championship caliber play, right? So No. And, and I will also say, and Hal Steinbrenner has said this, you don't need $300 million – a $300 million payroll to win. The Rays are a great example of that. There's been other great examples of that in recent years. However, when you're struggling in other departments – perhaps analytics, perhaps player development, then, and your superpower is spending money, is your wallet, is your bank account, then you need to use it. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, I'm going to ask the question now. We're going to ask it later, but since we were bringing up the idea of the front office and you brought up Cashman, I had a question on Twitter um, in preparation for this. I asked if anybody, if any listeners want any questions asked in the show. And someone asked about Brian Cashman saying, uh, does he have his job for life as long as Steinbrenner owns the Yankees? And maybe that's a little bit uh, tongue in cheek, but I think there are Yankee fans out there seriously wondering, like, what will it take for Hal Steinbrenner to eventually move on from Brian Cashman? It's a great question. I think based on merit the last few years, it's a fair question. With that said, he's you know just getting underway with a new deal, a new contract. You know, it wasn't expected that he was going to go anywhere. This offseason, I think it would take another disastrous type season for this to happen. Um, but that said, I think the spotlight is on Cashman. I think the spotlight is on a lot of the moves that he has made in the last few years, particularly the last two seasons. When you look at guys like you know, Josh Donaldson, Isaiah Kiner Falefa, Frankie Montas, you know, the Jordan Montgomery Harrison Bader deal, you know, those. Deals have not worked out. He's made a lot of bad decisions going back even further than just those couple trades. So it's a fair question that fans are answering. I, I understand why they were, why they are irritated, why they want change. Um, I just didn't think it was going to be happening this offseason. For sure. Gary, some players that you think that the Yankees might be going after in free agency or via the trade market, are there any? names that really kind of jump out at you that you say, wow, this would be a great fit for the Yankees. Yeah. So this kind of contradicts my point about avoiding players with injury histories, but we've heard them connected to Cody Bellinger a lot since last summer. Um, There's a need in center field, some concern over, you know, his underlying metrics, like I said, his injury history, but he does make sense there. If his market does not get crazy expensive. Uh, There's also been a lot of buzz around Japanese ace Yoshinobu Yamamoto, whom the Yankees have gone to watch multiple times. Now, offense, the lineup should probably be New York's number one priority right now. But as we saw, pitching depth got thin real fast because they are relying on guys who have long injury histories and are prone to getting hurt. Um, If the Yankees want a more established third baseman, they don't think uh, Oswald Peraza is going to be the answer there. And, Heimer Candelario makes some sense. I could also see them adding a stopgap veteran in center field, somebody like Kevin Kiermeyer. And I also think they have a few in-house free agents that they could resign, such as Frankie Montas, 
Wandy Peralta and Keenan Middleton for their bullpen. As far as trades go, uh, there's a lot of smoke surrounding them. The Cardinals over the summer, St. Louis needs some pitching, which the young pitching, which the Yankees have. And then Brendan Donovan and Dylan Carlson are just some of the Cardinals who were linked to the Yankees before the trade deadline that I still think are good fits for the Yankees. Mm-hmm. You know who would look really good in pinstripes? I'm just trying to imagine it. Um, how about Jordan Montgomery? He would look really good <laughs> in the Yankees. Anybody have any photos or you know Photoshop? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe look like? could do a Photoshop. Uh, I think that would look. He wouldn't great. pitch in the postseason, though. He wouldn't be very good then. Yeah, yeah, no, not not good enough to break to break the rotation. You know, definitely. I mean, oh my gosh, that was just a horrific, horrific trade. And and I I said it at that time. I think a lot of Yankee fans are like, "What? We're going to give up a control a pitcher under control for another year." Uh, you know, for a guy who relies on speed and is has a bad foot, um, <laughs> just didn't didn't make any sense from the get go. So I I yeah, understood I'm, it. I understood it at the time. It, it was surprising to me, but I understood the logic behind it. They they did have a surplus mm-hmm. of pitching. They had just gotten Montas. They really needed a center fielder. They were running Judge out there every day, um, and Bader was expected to come back and. You know, he did have a great postseason for them. He is an elite defensive center fielder. The bat never improved really beyond career norms outside of a few spurts, including last postseason. And you know, now we know what we know about Montas's shoulder, which you know we really knew at the time. And it's like, yeah, why? Why did they do that? Why did they think this was a good move? And that also, you know, that trade also. At, beckons questions about player development because you've heard montgomery talk about tweaking his arsenal and his pitch usage in ways that the yankees you know completely discourage okay well now he's pitched like a frontline starter ever since the trade for two different teams and he's thriving in the postseason it actually wouldn't surprise me if they tried for a reunion with him if you know somebody like yamamoto fell through but it, it does make you scratch your head a little bit yeah yeah, I I would be very surprised if he'd be willing to come back here. That's a different story, given, given the history. Um, but yeah, Cody Bellinger, I think, does make a lot of sense. There there are some red flags, and I think it it kind of depends on what that final price is going to be and and the length of the contract. But you know, there was a lot of talk this season about the Yankees needing to get some more left-handed sluggers into that lineup. It didn't make any sense. Another thing that made no sense with uh, Cashman's approach to building this team was putting all these right-handed hitters in Yankee Stadium. Like, why? You have such an advantage uh, with the way your stadium is set up. And I feel like they tried to go like on the cheap, like they figured that they could just get Franchi Cordero and Willie Calhoun and, you know, these kind of quad A players, these left-handed hitters and put them in Yankee stadium and oh, they're going to be fine. Yeah. You get a, a nice streak from them, but eventually you see what they are. Right. And they're limited. You know, a lot of times they don't yeah, like Willie Calhoun didn't have any defensive value. You, you can't really mm-hmm. have a guy like that on your team. Who's just a short side platoon player with no defensive value. Right. So I hope that they get, you know, totally nix that approach because it has not worked. Um, I, I'd, I'd be okay with Ballinger. I'm just looking at the list here of other free agents. Jock Peterson might be a fit for, you know, what they're looking for, a left fielder. Um, the lefty thing has been an issue for years now that really, yeah. for all the reasons you explained, like just makes 
no sense how, how little, you know, how few dependable left-handed hitters they've had. You know, they tried addressing that issue when, you know, a few seasons ago when they got Gallo and they got uh, Rizzo. Obviously, Gallo did not you know, pan out, had his fair share of struggles in New York. Rizzo had been really good for them and a great acquisition you know, that added that lefty presence and that lefty pop prior to the concussion this past season. But you need more than one or two dependable lefty hitters. I'm not just talking about lefty hit, left-handed hitters because, you ha- like right. you said, you had the Bowers, the Calhouns, the McKinneys. You need guys You need guys that could bop from the left side, and you would think that would be obvious in that stadium. Yeah. If, if we go into opening day with Jake Bowers in that lineup playing <laughs> left field, I'm going to do some crazy shit. Like, I'm going to lose my mind. Like, <laughs> it, it just it can't happen. Uh, th- this team has to has to really commit to having a, a real left fielder, which they they haven't had in a while. Um, all right, Gary, we want to get you out of here in, in a uh, in a minute, but we have our kind of like lightning round quick hitter segment. Uh, if you'd be able to just give me a very quick response um, to each of these questions, yeah. Uh, you so got first it. one I have, and, and some what's that? Oh, no, sorry. I just said I, yeah. I, no, I you got you got it. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. So first question for you is your favorite player to interview. Oswaldo Cabrera. Well, he seems like a fun dude. Yeah, like just, really. He really he does. Doesn't doesn't matter how he's playing. Doesn't matter how the team's playing. He's always smiling. He's always happy, always positive. Probably the friendliest guy in the clubhouse. That's not to say anything negative about anybody else in there, but just always, oh, always a pleasure to talk to. Yeah. Um, all right, next one is, uh, well, it's a, a statement and, and like an over-under. So Clay Holmes gets 70% of the saves on the Yankees next season. Over or under? I'm going to go with over. Mm. Least favorite road trip to make? I'm not experienced enough yet. I haven't been everywhere yet. You know, this is my first year on the beat. Um, trying to think of like places I really didn't enjoy or cities I didn't enjoy. Um, I will say I didn't find Houston all that impressive as far as just a city goes. I liked the ballpark. I liked the food around the ballpark, but I didn't really find myself, you know, there was, there was no like non baseball attraction that called to me that I tried to get out and do before a game or anything. Um, and I will also add that Baltimore in the summer is brutal. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. Gary, what month do we see Jason Dominguez return? I'm going to say post all-star break. Interesting. Okay. Late late July, maybe. Who's a player that we're most likely to see be a surprise sleeper for next season. Hmm. All right. We are, would we, would we count Austin Wells here? Would, Would you consider him a sleeper too high of a prospect? I think he, I I call him a sleeper at this point. Okay, so I'll go with him, and then the other answer I was going to say this this might be a little more of a reach, but Johnny Brito in a Michael King style relief role. That's very interesting because King is going to stay in the rotation, correct? It certainly looks like that. You know that could change depending on what the Yankees do in free agency or during the off season, but the expectation is that he's earned himself a chance to start. How many innings do you think we see from Michael King next season? If you had to guess. I could see him throwing around 150, 170. All right. Oh man, Mike, if he's if he goes oh, that much, I'm. 
He's going to be a You're stud, gonna, man. You know what? I can't even have this conversation with you. You're already freaking out. You're yeah, already, yeah, I'm already. You, uh, you, this is your number one. You're going to go A status on Michael King. All right, and wait until the next, fantasy follow up segment. We'll we'll talk about this, him this time. This time next year, you're going to be like, "Why did you let me do that?" <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, a couple couple more here, real quick, Gary. What's your favorite place to eat around Yankee Stadium? Early deadlines don't give me a chance. Like leave the stadium too much before games, but court deli is pretty legit. Good to know. And finally, what is your world series prediction with only four teams left? Yeah, I feel like, uh, we're, we're kind of, I've got a little bit of a hedge here now with the series already underway, but the Phillies and Rangers are my picks. And I think the Phillies got this. Awesome. Well, it's yeah. The playoffs have been awesome to watch. That that crowd in Philly has just been insane. So definitely looking forward to uh, potential World Series matchup there. But anyway, Gary, we appreciate you. Thank you so much for joining us. This was great. If you could tell our listeners where they could find your work and where they could find you on social media. Yeah, you guys can find me at nydailynews.com and also on Twitter at Gary H. Phillips. Um, thank you guys so much for having me on. This was a lot of fun. Yo, and you're at I, I have your your Twitter page up now. You're at four thousand nine hundred and ninety nine <laughs> followers. I'm a big fan of round numbers, so please, someone go follow him and get him to five thousand. <laughs> gotcha. Well, these these days, some of those might be bots anyway. So who knows uh, how many of them yeah. are legit and real? But uh, I appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs> All right, we're gonna take a quick break. We will be back uh, with our fantasy follow up segment. Welcome back to our fantasy follow up segment. We are so happy, or I am so happy, to be joined by Tyler London, who uh, you may know him on Twitter as Backpick Fantasy Baseball, someone who over the past year has really made a name for himself in the fantasy baseball community. Uh, It's been awesome to see him grow his following, and he's over at Sports Ethos, which is a, a growing website and is putting out great content. Uh, I know the baseball is headed over by uh, or is overseen by Joe Arico, who is a friend of the pod and overall good dude. So, um, yeah, we're just very happy to have Tyler on today. Uh, Mike, unfortunately, couldn't join us for this segment, so it'll just be me and Tyler for this. But, um, yeah, excited to dive into some fantasy baseball here. So, Tyler, thank you so much for making the time. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. Really excited to talk some baseball uh, we were talking off air about sort of the little lull after the season ends. And, uh, you know, we're all watching a lot of playoff baseball and stuff. And uh, like you said, really happy to be in this space. It's, you know, I'll be starting year two in the industry next year. And uh, part of my growth has been, you know, hopping on stuff like this. And, uh, you know, I met Mike on Joe's trade deadline show and that was great. And I'm super ecstatic to, you know, uh, be invited on, uh, you know, the fantasy baseball beat. Awesome, man. Well, tell us a little bit about, you know, how you got involved initially in fantasy baseball and and just tell us a, a little bit about your journey uh, over the past year, creating content and and kind of what, what your plans are. Yeah. So I'm just a diehard baseball fan. I grew up playing baseball uh, forever, uh, played, you know, high school baseball, played club baseball in college. And I've always just been a numbers guy, really enamored by baseball history uh, you know, Hall of Famers, statistics, everything like that. And, you know, I've been playing fantasy baseball for over 20 years now, back, you know, on the desktop era, you know, when we were drafted Lance Berkman, guys like that way back in the day. 
And, um, you know, as time went on, social media advent came on and Twitter came on. And then I just started following some fantasy baseball writers in the past three or four seasons. And I was realizing, wow, this is a big community. There's a lot of men and women on there that really sort of share, um, you know, that love of the game and numbers. And I just noticed the community was so accepting. Uh, it's not, you know, a really, um, you know, vitriol community, everyone pretty much gets along, really supports each other when there's sort of uh, different takes. It's not, you know, in a big battleground type kind of way. So I was like, wow, this seems like a really inviting space. And uh, yeah, I started with Sports Ethos. I, I follow Joe uh, Orico on uh, Twitter and I just saw him posting uh, way back in the day just about top added players and stuff like that. And I thought to myself, well, this is the stuff I'm looking at every single day. So I might as well start throwing some uh, information out there. And then I got in touch with Joe and basically started writing for his website or not his website, but um, the website sports ethos. And I write a bullpen call article every week. Cause I, I really like looking at, you know, players that can really reduce your ratios or, in saves holds leagues, uh, guys that can get holds. Cause those are some of the statistics that I, I feel like there's not as much content on, you know, like you get the closer content, but I really look in, uh, like those, uh, ratio reducers, like, uh, Orion Kirkener, who's came on with the Phillies this, uh, postseason, enamored by players like that. And, you know, a lot of my Twitter content is really broad. Like I really try to write for, you know, just the common guy that plays fantasy baseball. Of course, there's deep dives in there for more like 15 team leagues or the, the more intense roto settings. But I realize a lot of people play head to head cats on, you know, like Yahoo and the kind of the cut line for that is a little bit different than some of the, you know, deeper fantasy analysis that other people do, which I think is great and amazing. And I'm going to get in those industry leagues next year too. So I'm really excited to uh, expand that part. And like I mentioned earlier, you know, my next step is just kind of meeting more people. I want to get up to FPAS in Arizona. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to make it this year, but definitely in the future and just really start to make those connections because, you know, you can learn so much from everyone and uh, it's a game that we play and it's like a practice. So, you know, you can really learn your skills and ultimately I want to win my league. So I want to, you know, share the thoughts that I can, you know, get out there about fantasy baseball and learn from others. Yeah, man, it's been awesome to see you uh, over the past year, like I said, really develop a following and, uh, you know, you've done it. You had even posted something. I was I was looking through your feed in preparation for the show, and uh, you posted something interesting. Uh, you had a quote tweet in response to something that Joe tweeted about. You know, and we often lose sight of this. Like a lot of fantasy baseball players are not like NFBC. You know, these like really like intense high stakes leagues, right? They're kind of that you mentioned, like the average player, right? Who's just jumping in like a Yahoo head to head and. You know, you made a comment that you your content you wanted to match your user base, and uh, I, I think that's been part of your success is really just like, you know, I, I really love the way like your your back pick notes and the way you kind of just like give the highlights every night of like players that performed and things to keep an eye on. Um, I, I really I found that valuable, and uh, you know, it's been really cool to see you enter the space. Thanks. So um, yeah, so. Tell me a little bit about um, what your off-season process looks like. So, you know, you, you were talking off-air about, 
you know, you kind of wanting to to get back into to fantasy baseball analysis, even though we're only in October. So, so tell me, take me through like what your process looks like in the off season, and is there anything based on your past year that you might be changing moving forward in regards to that? Yeah, I, I thought about this, and one of the main things that I think has changed has been, you know, with the pitch clock and the lack of the shift we're no longer seeing all these starting pitchers with sub three ERAs. And it makes me a little bit more worried about investing such high equity early in drafts on say multiple starting pitchers in the first five rounds. Um, You know, if you're, if I'm in a roto setting, I definitely want to invest a little bit more in pitching and I might go a couple aces, but I'm really shying away from what I used to do in past years, like in roto sort of with that pocket aces mentality, maybe drafting a Garrett Cole and a Brandon Woodruff two or three years back and really lock down those pitching stats. I just feel like it's so volatile now. I'm sort of really leaning into across most formats, like a hitter heavy approach in the first 10 rounds, maybe first seven rounds going uh, six to seven hitters and trying to jump in uh, this off season and really look at who are the guys that I can get as an ace in like the fifth round. Like last year, Zach Wheeler was a guy that you could get in like the fifth round and it really worked out. And I'm trying to look at next year, like who are those guys going to be like, is a Pablo Lopez going to drop down to that fifth round and really trying to get that K uh, category lockdown. Because I think in the past, sometimes I've focused a little too much on whip and ERA and then you're falling behind in the K category. Cause I think K's are one of those statistics that is pretty stable. Like if a guy has more strikeouts than innings pitch in his whole career, you can kind of really see that, um, right. you know, play out in the next season and replicated value. So definitely in my off season approach, really trying to hammer down which pitchers I can get maybe fifth, sixth round, and then maybe another ace in like the eighth round or something like that. Um, and then also I think, you know, in my off season approach, really trying to look at players that I didn't own. Like I had six teams this year. And I think sometimes uh, as writers, we write a lot about the players that we have because we're really analyzing those players and we can really give a deep dive on, you know, players that we have a lot of exposure to. But, you know, really looking at those other pieces that other teams have and really researching those players and getting into the year. And then lastly, I just think um, with you know, teams investing more and bringing up call-ups, you know, especially they can get a first-round pick now if they have a rookie of the year. Uh, And there's been some steps taken against player manipulation, really trying to look into those prospects because, as you know, this year there was just so many impact rookies that came up at different points. And uh, especially next year, uh, getting into the industry leagues, NFBC, stuff like that, really trying to look at sort of the fab approach uh, because that's going to be something a little bit more new to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's definitely a, a learning curve there. And definitely want to highlight what you said about how these new rules in terms of uh, getting a, a first round pick if player wins rookie of the year, like there there is incentive now for players to come up early. And uh, we, we saw this was a, kind of the year of the rookie, specifically the rookie pitcher. So I feel like for next year, especially in in some of these like deeper uh, deeper formats that you're going to really have to have a knowledge base of who these young pitchers are going to be next year, right? Really be digging deep to see, you know, who are these, uh, these prospects that are kind of on the cusp. Um, what formats are you going to be? Uh, you mentioned 
kind of being in your first industry leagues next year. Uh, what formats uh, will you be playing overall next year? Yeah. So J- Justin Mason, you know, I met him, went on uh, one of those podcasts recently, uh, fan graphs. So mm-hmm. I'm going to be, I think it's called the uh, TG uh, BI league. So mm-hmm. the grand baseball invitational. So I'm going to be in that league. So be exposed to that FBC format. Uh, I know it's, uh, you know, two catcher format. So definitely going to have to research my, uh, you know, second catcher sort of options. And then uh, I'm a, I'm a Roto guy hard. My home league's a Roto league. I really love Roto. Um, so I think it'll be a good transition to the industry leagues for that. But I, I do have a lot of fun in head to head category leagues. I, I like Yahoo leagues. I like the app, how it's set up and everything. And, you know, I have a league with some college buddies uh, on uh, head-to-head cats, and I really like sort of the week-by-week approach. I'm not a big points league guy. I do some research looking at you know the rankings and stuff like that for points uh, points leagues, but I've been you know pretty much roto all the way, and then uh, head-to-head cats. Awesome, Tyler. You uh, you recently posted a poll on Twitter, giving uh, your followers a, a choice of four players for this coming season. Uh, they were Kyle Schwarber, Nolan Jones, Michael Harris, and Randy Rosarena. So uh, by the results, it looks like your followers were very big on Nolan Jones, garnering 43% of the vote out of those four players. So I want to ask you, do you agree with those results and why or why not? Yeah, so this one's tough because... Nolan Jones is the shiny new car and he did really, really well this year. What I thought was interesting was how much he ran because in the minor leagues, he, he didn't run as much as he did in the major leagues. Uh, that being said, I, I don't have Nolan Jones that far ahead of the other guys. I think that at cost, he might be the best option. Meaning if I can get him, maybe pick 80 to 90 somehow in a draft, uh, he'd be, you know, the best value, but I really think Nolan Jones could easily push up into the top 60 this year. Um, out of those players, I think I still would feel most stable with Randy Arozarena. I really like his counting stats with his runs and RBIs on the race. And I think that if I'm investing a top 50 pick, I know pretty much what I'm going to get with Randy A and I'm a little bit, uh, more risk adverse. Uh, that being said, uh, Nolan Jones is probably the home run swing there and might have the most upside because he put up like a 30, 30 stat line and, you know, extrapolated to 550 at bats in his, I think he almost had 400 at bats this year. Uh, and he plays half his games in course field. So my heart, you know, says Nolan Jones, but my logic says I'm going to go with a guy like Randy a now, if you're in a roto format or head to head cats and you really want to lock in the steals, I think Michael Harris uh, probably on paper is probably the best bet for speed, uh, but he does hit ninth. And Schwarber, um, I'm a big fade Kyle Schwarber guy um, just because, you know, he's more of a three category type player. And I really try to target batting average uh, in my drafts. So although I think he's a great player and I think he absolutely mashes, uh, he's a player that just, you know, he had under 200 this year. So it's kind of, addition by subtraction in a way absolutely yeah um so i'll give you the adps now these are super early drafts there's only three of them where we have the adp for that are being done on nfbc 
So right now, Michael Harris is the is going the earliest out of them. He's going at pick uh, average of 34, followed by Nolan Jones at 46, a Rosarena right after him, um, 47. And Schwarber was uh, the least expensive at 96. So, uh, yeah, man, the Nolan Jones hype is real. And uh, I just saw something on Twitter today, too. He was the fat or the least amount of plate appearances to have a 2020 season uh, in baseball history uh, ahead of uh, Raul Mondesi throwing back, uh, (laughs) throwing it back there. but uh, yeah, so there's going to be a, a lot of hype around him. So uh, yeah, it kind of depends. I, I I would go with Michael Harris out of those four. I was surprised, though, to see how much uh, Nolan Jones was an overwhelming winner in that poll that you had. But uh, anyway, moving on to this is a, a segment that we're going to be incorporating moving forward. Um, you know, we part of what we do at the fantasy baseball beat is we, we feature interviews with beat writers to try to get unique information, but we're going to try to take that a step further moving forward and really try to, to uh, dive deep into, you know, not only guests that are coming on our show, but look around, uh, you know, uh, beat writer articles and try to get snippets of information that we could present on the pod. And, and that could be helpful to our listeners. So I've got three different uh, articles that I wanted to look at today and just picked out, a piece of each of them. And starting with Adam McCalvey, who is the Brewers beat writer at MLB.com. In his latest article, he said that the biggest question for the Brewers next season is uh, when is Jackson Churio going to get the call to the majors? Now, Churio made, made it to AAA for the final week of the season at only 19 years old, which obviously shows that the Brewers are willing to move him aggressively. Uh, McAlvey notes, however, that there is a logjam in the Brewers outfield right now, which may delay Churio's debut. Now, I want to ask you, Tyler, early ADP for Jackson Churio is 248. If you were drafting today, would you be willing to take the risk on Churio at that price? At 248, I think so. If you could ask me before last season, uh, would you take L.A. De La Cruz at 248, especially in a league where you have bench spots, uh, more specifically like a Roto League where there's a games cap or something like that? I, I think I'd be fine taking a swing at that price. I mean, Trio stole a lot of bases in the minors so far, and he's shown some significant pop, one of the top prospects in baseball. There, there is the specter of the the you know logjam in the outfield, but I, I would assume if he came up, he'd be at, at least platooning and, and playing in there. So if you can slot him in there and he has a really good per game average. Now I'm not someone that uh, is going to draft someone in the minor leagues on a high equity pick. I don't think I would, you know, spend anything within the top 200, but at, at 248, I mean, that's, uh, you know, in your standard 12 team league on Yahoo or something, that's, you know, late rounds. Um, and even in a 15 team league where you have like that bench slots and, you know, you're maybe setting a weekly lineup and you, you have just an extra spot to burn at the end of your bench. I don't see why not. And then just drop them if he doesn't get called up, you know, by, you know, if you need to get more players in there, if you're sort of falling behind in the standings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm totally with you at that price. Um, I mean, just think back to last year with Jordan Walker, right? Like we didn't know, like I, he was probably going in that range early in draft season, like around this time. 
and by the time we got to late February, March, when it looked like he was going to break camp with the team, uh, or at least he had a chance to, his ADP shot up to like around 120, right? And I think we could see a similar thing with Churio. So I think it's definitely uh, it's worth the risk at that price, especially because he has that uh, that one skill that you can pretty much like as long as he's getting on base at all. It looks like he is going to be aggressive on the base pass. He had 43 stolen bases last year in double A in 559 plate appearances. Um, I mean, this is if not he's one of the best prospects in baseball, if not the top prospect. So, again, at that price, I'm with you, man. I am in on Jackson Churio. Next thing I want to look at is an article by Justice De Los Santos of uh, Pirates.com. He recently wrote about some free agents that may be a fit for the Pirates next season. And he identified Sean Manaya as a potential option. Now, this was someone I kind of just like, I'm not even thinking about, right? But when he, I saw his name, I was like, you know what? That would be interesting because if Sean Manaya did get a regular rotation spot, I think he would, especially on a team like the Pirates, who, listen, they don't have a lot of options, so they're not going to do what the Giants did, right? Let's say he went to Pittsburgh. Like, they're going to run him out there every fifth day, right? And what I found interesting, he pointed out in the article that from June onward, Manaya really improved. He had a 3.26 FIP across his final 81's, 81 innings of the season. Looked at his ADP, he's going at 364 right now. So is Manaya somebody that you would be interested in, Tyler, if he signs with a team that you know or that you could feel confident is going to give him the ball every fifth day? You know, Manaya, I thought was really interesting this year, even when he was in like sort of a swingman role. And then when he got traded to the uh, Giants down the stretch, I sent out a tweet and sort of fantasy head to head finals week saying, stream this guy. He's been good. He's been really good. Um, and two of his last three years, he's averaged more strikeouts than innings pitch. He had 194 and 179 innings in 21, had 128 strikeouts and 117 innings in 23. So if I'm in a build where, you know, I'm rostering seven to eight starting pitchers, I know the wins might not be there on the Pirates, but um, I'm in on Manea. You know, you'll sort of have to have a staff that can balance out his ratios because I think he's a guy that, you know, may flirt with like a four ERA. Uh, his career ERA is 4.10. But if you're really trying to bank on some Ks and you need some good K rates late in the draft, I'm in on him. He's not someone I'll be particularly targeting, but I'm, I'm sure I'll have a share or two, especially with his ADP sort of not being that high. Yeah, I'm sure like when he's this is probably his low point, right? Like once he signs, I would imagine that that ADP will rise. So anybody who's doing like these early NFBC 50s or uh, draft champions leagues, I think it makes sense to kind of get out ahead of it and and target Manaya in that range. I think it's it's a no brainer. I mean, you look at his velo um, was up over two ticks. Uh, Now, I know his role kind of fluctuated. Um, in that swingman role for the Giants, but that is obviously uh, a major, you know, uh, coming from the left side, being up at about 94 mile an hour average fastball velocity, that'll play, you know, and and we can feel confident in the strikeouts. So yeah, definitely uh, someone that I will be looking at uh, and monitoring this off season. Last article that I wanted to look at was from AJ Casavelli. Uh, writes about the Padres for MLB.com. And he wrote about Blake Snell. And he predicts that Snell 
will leave San Diego as a free agent this offseason. So I, I know this is going to be a very like he's one of those guys that is always hotly debated, right? Like I remember a lot of people. I actually had a, a Twitter debate with uh, my friend uh, Tony Tamba. I don't know if you caught any of those, but we we would take like a player and go back and forth and got heated, man. Like Blake Snell, like it, it brings out emotions in people, <laughs> you know, because he's burned a lot of people in the past. Uh, and I remember I was like, man, I this is the year to buy into Blake Snell. Right. He's coming into a contract year. Like we know, like the skills are there. Like I just have a feeling he's going to put it all together this year. And it worked out this year. Obviously, his price is going to go up uh, this year compared to last, all coming off of a Cy Young season. Uh, what are you doing with Blake Snell in drafts next season? So, to be honest, I'm sort of still sketched on Blake Snell. I know he was, you know, this, you know, had an amazing season. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, I just don't see myself investing that early in a pitcher. Like he's probably going to be one of, you know, the elite pitchers off the board uh, next year, especially, and his strikeouts are good. And, and trust me, I love Blake Snell. When he got taken out against the Dodgers in the World Series years back, I was like, thank God, you know, because the guy is nasty and he strikes out a lot of hitters. So by no means am I saying fade Blake Snell. It's just, you know, in most of my strategies in my type of leagues, I, I don't my see myself investing that much in him, but I wouldn't be surprised if he does well on someone else's roster. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I probably um, won't be in on him either, but I do find it interesting. I, I think the fantasy community is still a little bit, use the word sketch. I, I think they are still feeling that way about Blake Snell. I'm looking at the ADP. Again, it's only three drafts, very small sample here, but just gives us a general idea of where some players might be going. Take a guess where Blake Snell's ADP is. 39. 66. Oh, wow. Right? Like, doesn't that seem... I, I, just, I didn't even look until just now. And I was like, wow, that's much lower than I thought coming off of a Cy Young season. So there's still, there is still that skepticism there around him uh and again a lot of people have been burned by him in the past so yeah that that seems like uh, pablo lopez is going ahead of him uh wow. tariq scubel logan gilbert i mean i don't know about that <laughs> i don't know about that uh that's interesting yeah it's it's 66 especially if i'm in like a 12 team league that that put around round round five uh you know that that, that intrigued me a lot in a 15 team league uh, I'd probably want to get hitters in that range, but I, I can see mm. myself if, if he's settling in the mid sixties, uh, that could be a decent value. Cause you know, I, I'd be fine with him as an ace on his staff. Um, but yeah, top 48 would scare me for him. Yeah. I wouldn't feel comfortable with him as my SP one, but I mean, given where he's again, we'll, we'll see where he ends up, but assuming he stays somewhat in this range, like, I'd be cool with I'm I'm more of a, a pitching heavy uh, fantasy player like up top. So I'd probably grab one of the aces, whether it's a uh, Cole Strider, Burns, Wheeler. Uh, and then if I could come back around and say round four and get Blake Snell as my SP2, I'm, I'm good with that. You know, like I, I think that's uh, I can as my SP1, I'd be definitely worried. But uh, if he's going in that range. I think uh, I think that'll work. So, all right. 
So that is our beat writer roundup for today. Uh, we're going to move on to our next segment. Uh, and we're going to call this for today, Take Your Back Pick in honor of our guest. Uh, so I'm going to give you uh, five different pairs of players that are at the same position. And I'd like you to give me, very simple, which one of these players you will be uh, favoring in upcoming drafts. So the first dichotomy is Ellie De La Cruz or Royce Lewis. I know consensus consensus might say EDLC, but give me Royce. Royce, uh, I really think it's that stable five category coverage. I know there's some injury concerns, but um, I'm scared of uh, Ellie De La Cruz's batting average. So for next year, I, I, I'd go Royce. Yeah. Uh, so we'll we'll play this game again. Guess where Ellie De La Cruz is going right now? <sighs> this is fun. Let's just do this yeah. all night. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Uh, I'd say forty-two. 19 baby oh wow yeah i was surprised at that too that's that's early man especially like given some of the struggles that we saw um at the end of last year uh i'm you know i know there was a lot of debate around uh, ellie you know there were some people who were just like pointing out everything that was wrong with him and then he had his defenders and that was uh you know a lot of back and forth on twitter about that but just given the risk, now I know he's going to give you stolen bases, right? I know he's in a good ballpark, but there is a, a, a scary floor there for a guy going at pick 19. Um, yeah. You know, the, the, the K rate, the ground ball rate, uh, we saw that, you know, toward the end of the year, the Reds put him near the bottom of the order. Like, I don't know, man, that's just a little too much risk for me to take at that point in the draft. Uh, I'm with you. Royce Lewis, uh, I would take out of those two. And Royce Lewis right now is going at pick 28. So he's another one that's getting hyped up. And I'm sure we'll get a lot of helium as we get closer to draft season. But uh, that dude's a stud. Just stay healthy, Royce. Yeah. Um, Moving on, we've got Tanner Bybee and Justin Verlander. So we got a young gun and an old vet. Which one of those would you be taking? Oh man, this this one had my head scratching when I looked at the outline. Uh, but I think I like Tanner. I'd feel more excited with him. I, you know, his K rate is a, a bit higher than Verlander, and this is one of those classic. You know, do you get the stable vet on a good team? It's probably going to get you some wins in the win category, or you go at the up and comer. But out of these two, I'd, I, I'd go Bybee. But it's really close for me. Um, you know, I think Bybee has a lot of upside and just watching him throw, he's nasty. So, um, I would go him. Yeah, I'm with you there. Bybee is going ahead of Verlander in early drafts. All right. Another, uh, another pair of pitchers here, Pablo Lopez or Justin Steele. Yeah, this one, I got Pablo Lopez. I just really like the strikeouts with, uh, Lopez and I think, uh, you know, their ERA and whips are sort of comparable and Steele really had those low ratios in the first half. And then they sort of bounced out a little bit at the end. And I really like Justin Steele, but out of those pitchers, uh, just for the years that Pablo Lopez has been a pretty safe floor pitcher and then his uptick in strikeouts, uh, giving Pablo Lopez K's out of these two. 
Yeah, I feel like Justin Steele is gonna, is due for some major regression here. Um, I don't know. I kind of was in on him last year, but then I'm going to say something really embarrassing. All right. Can I can I confess this to you? Yes, sir. All right. I mean, I know you work in the field of uh, of mental health, just like me, and I feel like you're equipped to handle this. Um, I dropped Justin Steele at one point. Uh, remember when he got injured last year? Yeah. He had the forearm strain, and there was like a little bit of question how long he was going to be out. Um, I dropped him in my main event league, and uh, that that hurt, uh, to yeah. say the least. Um <laughs> I think I dropped him for Cutter Crawford, which I mean, Cutter Crawford, mind you, this is a 15 team league. So Cutter Crawford had some value in that format. But, um, you know, I, I, I thought that the bottom was kind of going to fall out like his stuff. Justin Steele's plus uh, stuff plus numbers weren't great. Uh, just felt that there was going to be some regression there with him just being a two pitch guy. And uh, yeah, that was that was not pleasant. So um, I feel better. Do you uh, have any thoughts on that? Do you have any therapeutic advice on uh, on what I did last season? Oh, man, it's a tough one. And we've all been there, I think, in fantasy. We all have those drops. And it's like the most insane feeling <clears throat> to look back and just look at someone else's roster and see your guy just racking up numbers. We all do it. <laughs> it can become like sort of an obsession. But uh uh, you know, all jokes aside, what I try to do is when I make a drop and uh, that player is no longer picked up, I just try to out of sight, out of mind it. I'm like, at this point, moving forward, there's nothing I can do. This player is not on my roster. It's on someone else's roster and it's just irrelevant to my process the rest of the year. So I just try to turn the page pretty quick. And yeah, if you're an aggressive player and, and you're trying to win first place, you're going to have those yeah. drops that you make and you sort of have to in your head balance it out by saying okay i pick i i've made a lot of drops and i've also made a lot of good pickups too and it's just part of the process sometimes and can't can't get them all well, beautifully said thank you so much i feel so much better how much <laughs> do i owe you <laughs> i'll venmo you whatever your rate is okay i'm <laughs> all right um moving on to uh, two players that you know, I was surprised to see how close they were together. And maybe I'm just like kind of blind to this, to one of these guys because I didn't have him on my team. Uh, Josh Lowe and Christian Yelich are going in the same range in these early drafts. Who would you take out of those two? I, I, I'd go Yelich. I mean, I think they're pretty comparable players, surprisingly. It's crazy to say that Josh Lowe is comparable to Yelich at this point, especially Yelich, ex MVP. But really, the Rays are going to Ray. Um, you know, I'm worried about low, you know, starting, uh, against left-handed pitchers cause he sits a lot and, uh, Yelich, I know he sort of slowed down a little bit at the end. Um, I don't had a little bit of an injury bug, but he really returned top value. I did a second half redraft this year and he was like, I think a top 15 player on Yahoo's player Raider at that time in the year. And, you know, Yelich is back and, I really like what the Brewers are doing too. And he's just a five category guy. Love low, great player. One of the best sort of like lower value guys uh, in this year, you know, considering his preseason rank. Um, And I just, you know, I'm worried about the platoon kind of deal with low. Yeah, I guess that's what got me hung up because when I, just the playing time alone, 
I think there's going to be a pretty significant difference. I mean, just looking at this year, Christian Yelich had 632 plate appearances, Josh Lowe 501. So that's such a big difference. I'm just surprised. Like, it's not like Yelich is 38 years old and really showed like a significant skills decline. Like, if anything, the skills really bounced back for him last year. Um, so that one to me was a little bit puzzling. Why? If I'm not mistaken, Lowe was going slightly ahead of him in ADP. And yeah, I don't I don't get it, man. Like, all right, stolen bases were similar. Lowe had 32, Yelich 28. Uh, home runs, Lowe with 20, Yelich with 19. Like the underlying skills there are also in the same range. Yelich had a 9.3 barrel percentage, Lowe with a 11%. Max EV, almost the same. Similar contact rate. The only thing with Yelich, the ground ball percentage is elevated as usual. We know that's that's Yelich's thing, right? Um, but yeah, I, I don't I don't know. Like you just there's really not a scenario I don't see where Josh Lowe is all of a sudden be, gonna become an everyday player. And uh here's the big difference. We, you know, I think we underrate the runs category sometimes. Yelich had 106 runs because he played every day or almost every day, uh hitting the top of a good lineup. Guess how many low had? 79. Close. 71. Okay. So when when you're talking, you know, almost 40 runs, that's that's a huge difference. And I think that's that can be underrated. So yeah, give me Yelich out of those two all freaking day. Yeah. Now this one startled me. Like I, I had to do a double take when I saw this early ADP. And uh, I mean, I'm sure anybody listening will understand why two guys going almost back to back in ADP right now, two outfielders, Mike Trout and TJ Friedel. Now, at first glance, that just doesn't seem. Hold on. No, no, no. Hold on. I think there's a new draft in here. Okay. I got to correct myself. I don't want to give out inaccurate information. I'm looking at the most updated info. Mike Trout's at 101, all right? And TJ Friedel is at 135. So in a similar range, not exactly right next to each other, but still, like the idea of Mike Trout even being in the vicinity of TJ Friedel is just, it's odd to think. So I guess the better question for you, Tyler, is, is Mike Trout with all of the injury concerns and everything that's happened over the past few years, are you buying back in if his ADP stays within that range? For a four category guy like Mike Trout, if he's in, you know, round, you know, pick 90 to 100, I'm fine getting in on Trout there because I think if he's healthy, there's a pretty uh, safe floor there. I know he has, you know, major injury concerns and stuff like that. And the Angels, you know, aren't, you know, really that competitive, especially if they lose Otani. Um, but trout, you know, at, at that range, I'd be okay with, I, I faded him hard the last, you know, three or four years, just once his steals went down, because I feel like for a top 30 pick where he was going, I really want a five category hitter. So I've been out on trout for so many years, but if he's going to be that depressed in value, he's someone I'd definitely consider, uh, cause he's really giving you that four category coverage. And if you're sort of punting steals, he's sort of like a perfect guy to grab, now, Friedel's super exciting. I know he stole a lot of bases, but in this modern era, there's going to be guys that steal bases. Like Friedel, I know, had some helium 
uh, you know, in industry leagues heading into the years, a lot of people kind of predicted him going off, but there's going to be another TJ Friedel next year. There's going to be a guy that gets, you know, a starting role against both splits and steals a lot of bases. Now Trout gives you sort of that, you know, 290, 30, 100, 100 upside. Maybe not, you know, the 100 RBIs might be hard on the Angels at this point, but, uh, yeah, it'd be, it'd be fun to get back in on Trout because I haven't been a Trout guy for years. Would you be more interested in Friedel at 130 or Trout at 100? Trout at 100. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Friedel, I don't know. What makes you think that he's going to be like all of a sudden they're going to just put him out there as an everyday player? Um, I, I know. So I noticed like he was like sort of like what, like 80% starting, like he was starting against some lefties last year. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that, that makes me think that he could continue to do that. Um, but yeah, I, I, you're, you're right. Like he might not, you know, get both splits all the time, but more of what I was saying is I think there's going to be other guys like Friedel that steal a lot of bases that get both splits. Yeah. 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 And, and just, I'm pulling up Friedel's like underlying metrics and I just see a lot of red flags in this profile. Um, hard hit rate according to fan graphs. I know some people use Statcast, some people use Fangrass. I've all I've used Fangrass for years, and I've I've found that to be pretty reliable. Uh, so I, I'm just sticking with it. But TJ Friedel's hard hit rate was 24.9 percent last year. That's yeah. really bad. Um, and he's like one of those guys where his Babbitt uh, wasn't really like matching up with his average and stuff like that. I remember, and their outfield was pretty crowded because d- didn't they make a trade too to to get another outfielder late in the year? Um, I think they got rent. Well, yeah, they got rent for, I don't know if he's going right. to be back, but yeah, yeah I know got, it was what's up. Uh, and they got Will Benson that they got to get in mm-hmm. there too. Yep. So yeah, it's, it's a crowded outfield. I think he could lose some playing time and yeah, I mean, just, uh, infield fly ball rate was 17%. I think that's a stat that sometimes gets overlooked because those are automatic outs, man. You know, that's as good as a strikeout. So right. if you're popping the ball up near 20%, like that's automatically to me, I put a big red flag uh, to a player uh, with those stats. So yeah, I'm not, I'm not feeling it with TJ Friedel at pick 130. I was in on him last year because uh, I felt like given the price around 300 where he was going, it definitely made sense. But I will, uh, I doubt I'll have any Friedel on my teams uh, this coming year. All right, so that is going to do it for us in terms of baseball analysis for today. But um, did want to end with our final segment, which is a segment that we always try to incorporate into this show. And that is our mental health minute. So for anybody who's new to the show, um, this is a segment where we talk about things that we are doing personally to maintain our overall wellness. So uh, that could be for your physical health, for your mental health. Um, so, yeah. So I, I feel like this has been really helpful for myself, for the guests that we have on. And I, I hope this is helpful for the people who listen to the show, uh, getting some helpful tips um, on how they can maintain their wellness. So, Tyler, tell me for you, what is something that you've been doing uh, to maintain your overall wellness? I, th- I think something that I've really leaned into. Uh, and you, you know, too, as someone that works in mental health, I, I really just tried to be honest with people 
and sort of, um, you know, I want people to say things to my face, what they really feel and what I'm learning in life and in marriage and friendships and stuff. Those things that are in the back of your head that you're sort of scared to say because you're worried about someone else's reaction, uh, really just say those things. You know, if you're in a relationship, you're anxious about something, verbalize it. If you have a friend uh, dealing with addiction or something like that or dealing with bad behaviors and you want to talk to them about it, but you're scared of how they might react, you know, you can really save something. You can have a better relationship. You could, you know, even save someone's life if they're dealing with something very serious by reaching out and just saying what you really want to say to someone. So I think uh, getting those things from your subconscious to the conscious that are really scared uh, can, can be scary to say, I think is something super important. And I think it all comes down to sort of the ethos of how you present it. So if you come across like you're not being selfish because you want change to occur, occur just for you, you want to help the other person. I think that's super important. And then, you know, it kind of reduces my anxiety when I get everything off my head. Cause if I'm holding stuff inside and I think especially as men too, sometimes we're scared to talk about our feelings, but really allowing, you know, sort of that right brain emotional part to come out, uh, I think is super important. Yeah, I uh, totally agree. And I feel like when we hold that stuff in, um, whether it's like something that is going unsaid in a relationship or whether it's emotions, um, you know, we may think we're doing a good job of, you know, of concealing that, but I feel like that's only sustainable for so long. Right. And a lot of times those things that we're holding in get, they manifest in one way or another. Um, I feel like that can eat, so it can manifest if we're talking relationships, I think it can manifest in like passive aggressive behaviors. Um, you know, and, and doing things like, like maybe you're upset with your partner about something and you don't want to say it to their face or, um, and, you know, actually I work with, uh, I'll tell you a little bit about the work that I do. I work with, uh, uh, clients with gambling disorders and I, I actually, it comes to mind like a few people that I've worked with recently where there was a lot of problems within their relationships and it was almost like the gambling yeah, there was a lot more to it than this, but um, their gambling was almost like a passive aggressive way to like get back at their partner because they were pissed at them about something else. Right. And like it could be something like that. It could be just doing things that maybe, you know, at some levels are going to is going to upset them, um, you know, and it, it's kind of just like an indirect way of expressing your anger and frustration. And obviously we know the end result of that is not going to be good, right? It's going to further damage the relationship. So like you said, in a situation like that, uh, I think just being direct and even though it can be scary and uncomfortable, it's in most situations, the right option. Um, you know, and, and also when we talk about emotions and, you know, holding those in, I think again, people feel like they can, some people feel like they can do that effectively, but, you know, it can manifest in a lot of different things. Like for some people, it's physical health, right? Like you see people come down with like mysterious physical ailments or different, you know, things going on. And, you know, there's, we get into a deeper discussion about this another time, but like a lot of times there's unresolved trauma or unresolved, you know, emotional issues going on that are being manifested through these physical symptoms. 
right? So uh, yeah, I'm totally, uh, I don't want to go on too long of a spiel here, but totally with you on the idea of just expressing yourself, whether it's emotionally in relationships, I think that is so important in order to be, um, you know, in a healthy place mentally and emotionally. Um, All right. My thing for uh, this week is just the idea of being creative is kind of like what uh, I've just been thinking about a little bit recently and like the importance of having an outlet for a creative energy. Now, like some people are just like naturally super creative or like super artistic, right? Whether it's singing, dancing, drawing, whatever, like some people just have that natural ability. And maybe people who don't have that ability may think, well, I'm just not really a creative person. So they, they may not like just engage in any type of creative activities. Uh, but what I would say, because I've all, I had thought of myself as kind of that type of person, like I can't. I can't draw for shit. Like, well, I'm not creative or, you know, and I think even though I may not be creative in that way, I could be creative in other ways. And like, for example, this podcast, like the act of just like putting together a show, that's an act of creation. Right. And I think for me, this has been really valuable in kind of like having that outlet. Um, and I see that people that don't have that outlet or just like consuming all the time, whether it's social media, Netflix, whatever it is, and are not creating anything, I feel like that has a negative effect on their overall mental health. So that would be my message for this week. I just started thinking about that the other day. You know, like I feel like we all have a creative energy that has to be expressed in some way. So whatever that is for you, Try to find that, whether it's, you know, it could be writing, it could be, could be podcasting. Um, you know, even if you're not a great artist, just drawing, you know, just for the sake of doing it for enjoyment. Uh, I, I feel like any creative activity could be helpful. So any thoughts on that? The idea of being creative? Yeah, I, I think you hit it right on the head where we live in such a time where there's so much content to consume and it's really easy to uh smash the like button on something but there's a whole world out there you know whether you go out and get on your skateboard and learn a new trick or Mm -hmm. do some drawing or you know make up an imaginary story before bedtime for your kid instead of being on your phone or something like that uh really just trying to create because when you create something that's the stuff that's going to be timeless there forever and there's a lot of people doing it and there's a lot of great communities so whatever you're interested in especially nowadays you can find that community uh and, and just like you said even with podcasting or fantasy baseball uh you know, it's very therapeutic just getting mm-hmm. content out there and having that sort of original thought. I think innate in all of us, we have that unique personality that we have. And I think when we create things, that's when we get something unique, something that's just truly you and truly being original. And, you know, even within the fantasy baseball space, I think uh, like, you know, I, I love following your account too. And uh, the people that I really value are the people that really just give their thoughts. And even if their take ends up being flagrantly wrong, I'm like, hell yeah, that person's like, like giving exactly what they think and that's how you get different takes different strategies and stuff like that so um yeah go out there do do something be creative and i get what you're saying too sometimes even with art um if you're not the most naturally like inclined person like i can barely draw a stick figure but it's still super healthy just to even just 
get a piece of paper and put a bunch of different colors on it, you know, just sort of get your emotions out or, you know, journaling or anything like that. So yeah, especially with uh, all the computer work that we do nowadays across any industry, mm-hmm. I think uh, putting pen to paper or recording something or going out and doing something physical where it's sort of artistic, um, even something like yoga is like an art um, mm-hmm. is super important. And uh, yeah, uh, I'm a therapist just like yourself and I view it as an art trying different things. And no matter what your job is, there's always uh, a way to integrate it into art and making it really your own to Mm. just make yourself stand out. Yep. Love it, man. Very well said. Well, that is, uh, I want to get you out of here because we're, we're at our limit, but this was great. I really uh, appreciate you coming on Tyler. Uh, just if you could tell our listeners where they could find you on social media and, uh, where they could find your work. Yeah. So social media, come follow me at backpick fantasy. I try to reply to most of, uh, you know, you guys that reach out if you have questions about moves and stuff like that. And I kind of view it as like a chat room. Of course, there's times where life takes over and I can't, you know, respond to every single, uh, you know, comment or reply, but get on there. It's a good community. I have a lot of loyal followers that have been there from the start. And there's just a lot of conversation on my page. So at Backfit pick fantasy and then uh the the big play is www.sportsethos.com really growing in terms of our baseball content um you know last year was sort of like the big kickoff year where joe got a bunch of writers on there and yeah if you like bullpen articles i can be your guy so uh you know log on to uh sportsethos.com uh and you know get involved in our baseball community a lot of good forums on the website too Right. Awesome, man. Well, that is it for today's show. Uh, we appreciate you listening. Uh, we're going to be back. And for the, so for the off season, we're looking at putting out an episode every other week. Uh, so look out for our next episode dropping in two weeks. We're going to try to line up some more great guests for you. But uh, and if you like the show, I always have to say, please leave a radiant review. It would help us out quite a bit. Uh, So again, that is it for Mike Carter, for Tyler London. I'm Chris Torres. Thank you for listening to the Fantasy Baseball Beat.